0: Hey everyone, I hope you're well wherever you happen to be around the world. This is Lorcan Owens. I'm the host and publisher of the Nasra Politics Society and Extremism podcast. I'm delighted to be joined today by Carl Abi Ghanim, who's based in Beirut, Lebanon. Carol, thanks for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having um, me. You are a policy researcher with LCEPS, the Lebanese Centre for Policy Studies. You're an activist. You work in the area of gender and sexuality. I think you're an actress
1: as well. Yeah, I used to act for a few years. It's still on the side, but uh, not formally.
0: We're going to talk about a couple of things today. It's a very difficult year in Lebanon for the last 12 months or so. We focus, first of all, on the Saura, the revolution that started in October 2019. Your analysis on that, the initial motives, what went well, what went badly, and what's the future
1: of it? The revolution basically happened October 17, 2019. And so we're here one year later, a little bit more. So it's actually easy to compare and reminisce on those days. The reason or reasons why this revolution happened One can say they're obvious, and then you can look a little bit further, and you can see that there were so many layers as to why this started. So I'm not necessarily going to be trying to analyze the day it started, uh, more just the things building up to it. Obviously, Lebanon has been going through economically and politically a lot of challenges since 20, I want to say 2011, but more so in 2014 and 2017 primarily because of all of the gaps we had uh, in the electoral system. We had a government missing for quite some time. Uh, There were a lot of political issues that had to happen, political things that had to unravel before we could have some sort of government or institution or state that we can start talking to. The situation was getting really, really bad in the past few years. This means bad on the economic, on the political, on the social, also on the health and also on the geopolitics around Lebanon. But specifically, if we're looking at what happened last year, what happened last year is that since 2017, economists and experts have been talking about this potential financial collapse that Lebanon is coming to. And this was due to the fact that we were not doing any reforms. We were just kind of always, by us I mean the people in charge, we're just trying to get money from international sources, so they would go to conferences like the Brussels conference and the Paris One, Paris Two, and they would suggest reforms and they would do pledges and they would pledge to do something on the infrastructural level, on the educational level, on the power sector and energy and development. And then obviously, we don't know what happens with these projects. So. The country as a structure was falling apart internally. It's like someone was not really giving it any maintenance or any attention, trying to see if there's a bolt or a screw here missing, how do you fix that and actually repair it so that your machine that you're relying on keeps moving. So years of no maintenance and bad planning, bad decision-making, no strategies whatsoever on how to develop the country, no vision even, you don't even feel that there's a vision. You feel that the political leaders that have been in charge for so long have been saying exactly the same thing. And so in some of the work that we've done at LCPS, we've done some sort of discourse analysis, especially around the time of the elections, where we try to see what the political elites try to revive in terms of the narrative or the rhetoric. What are the promises that they give to their constituents and to the the people that they're trying to get to vote for them? in order to see if there's really any difference, in order to see if there's a transformation in this leadership that is governing the country. And you know, when you look at it, you see that it's the same techniques that are used to get votes. Either you have, I'm just gonna briefly talk about them because I marginally worked on that project and then someone else, uh, my my colleague took over, but there are a lot of political leaders that use fear-mongering as a technique. They make you afraid of something else, the alternative, if you do not vote for me. You have people that try to sell you some sort of ideology and tell you that you're not faithful to that ideology if you do not vote for me. Uh, Some people try to sell you the whole in-group type of thing, like, oh, we are one with this particular group, and so we have common cleavages or grievances or injustices. And so if you vote for someone within the sect, then you have a higher chance of getting your benefits across, right? Because we're going to look out for each other before we start looking out for the rest. And nothing has changed in over 10 years. Nothing, not the people in charge, not the rhetoric that they've used, not any infrastructural project that was set on the table. Nothing has changed. It's like no one invested in anything. And then add to that, a series of small decisions economically that just tipped the entire population. And it was triggered by something as silly that seems worldwide so silly, which is a small increase in the fee to be able to use WhatsApp messaging, which is a free global private app, right? And this was all with the aim of making more money for the governments. And the argument that they use, which is to relieve the amount of debt that we have in the country, and then putting that on the common people, the commoners, the middle class, if it exists still, But it's primarily affecting the lower class. They use WhatsApp messaging and calls uh, to be able to move around because our data in Lebanon is exorbitant. It's completely out of any range. It's one of the most expensive telecommunications that we have. Wi-Fi is expensive. 3G is expensive. Recharging your line prepaid or postpaid is expensive. So add to that a tax to use a free messaging app. It's not like any other decision in the Gulf where they decided to ban the application, for example. So if you ban it, that's one thing. But you're letting them use it and then you're taking a tax from it, although it's for free. That's another thing that's basically robbing you blindly out of something that they don't have the right to do. So it started off with something like that. We know because we were there. But then we realized that this was part of a larger systemic issue. This is a classism issue. You have... People that cannot make ends meet, and then you have the 1% that's really, really rich that is moving on, and so they're not affected by this. But this particular decision kind of touches on the principles of living. Right now, with this modern world, you can't touch at something like this. It's a right to have access, especially that the world operates on Wi-Fi right now. It operates on the internet. It operates in a digital format. So they're kind of also making it more difficult for you to operate within this modern sphere. So not only are you a third world country, you you need to operate like a third world country as well. And it's restricted to those that have money to be able to excel. So it started off with something like that. And then I think what helped maintain this and have the people unpack every single other aspect that they want to raise, this was the time to raise it. And this is why there were a list of demands because it wasn't just about the WhatsApp revolution or whatever external sources called it. They called it the WhatsApp revolution, or I can't specifically remember anymore all the names, but that was primarily the one. And we were criticized for it, right? Oh, this is so easy. We haven't revolted in years, apparently. And so now we're revolting over WhatsApp, which wasn't the case as well. There were attempts of revolts in Lebanon in 2011. There were with take back parliament. There were attempts of revolt in 2016 with the Hiraq for. The trash crisis that happened. So there were momentums building up for this particular moment. And when it happened, it just expanded into everything else. We felt it. I think I felt it as well. When I went down to the streets the first time, I could feel it. I almost told myself, this could be it. This could be our entry point. This might actually be the one that turns everything. Obviously, it didn't. So... What it did do, however, is stir up a lot of interesting things. One, and I think we all can say this, we did take back a certain aspect of the public spaces in Lebanon. We don't have them. We crave them and we made it our own. It was the most informative place for discussions. People came together, intellectuals and non-intellectuals or whatever they would like to call themselves or define themselves. You had lay people, Who were just really going there to get a better living condition, who were engaging in conversations that they would otherwise have no platform to express themselves with, right, especially if the same people are being elected all the time, and you feel like your vote doesn't matter because it's part of a larger plan that these political leaders have. And so you feel that taking back public space in 2019 in Lebanon was quite something. The universities moved to the main revolution spot, the protest areas. You had teachers that tried to give educational settings in these particular spaces so they could draw on real-life experiences happening right in front of them. And a lot was happening every single moment of every single day there was any sort of movement or action happening. And so other things that worked, I don't think any attempt of a revolution in the past 10 years or 20 was of this scale maybe 2006. But um, in general, I think with this caliber and this quality and this attempt of organizing such large scale across the regions, inwards and on the coast, I think it was really, really big. And also getting the diaspora to move was also very big. We rarely hear of the people that are abroad. We had people that were really, really, really dying to get to Lebanon to be part of this particular historical moment that I think internally we kind of knew that would not necessarily lead to what we wanted to lead to, but there was something very sacred about that moment happening and whether we kept the momentum for three months or six or seven and now it moved into something else, I don't think that's the main important thing. I think the main important thing is that this was the first reminder or the first confirmation that we can organize. How we can sustain that organization is, I think, our next challenge. But can we organize? Yes. Are the youth apathetic about political mobilization? No. Are the people really just blindly following everything? Also no. So we have some main questions that are answered that we can actually say. We have history to prove this right now. And I think what's also very important is that we know how important our history is because our history is blacked out. We don't know much about our history. It's completely, it's filled with gaps, even in schools, even after school. There's a very big part of our history that's just word of mouth. And that's very skewed and biased. And we don't really have the full picture. But this is one of the things that is marked in our minds and will be marked for future generations. That this happened. No matter how the rhetoric changes now and the media, it happened. We have documented it and we have been completely all over it, so there's a lot to learn from this experience. How quickly we will learn depends on the privilege that we have in life to be able to do that. To be able to plan a revolution, you have to be free for that. I think I sent you a slightly older version of my CV, but I actually removed activism from it because it's not necessarily something that is my livelihood, it's part of my identification. I can't just quit and be an activist all of my life. You can do that within the formal way, like NGOs, CSOs, and all of that. But in general, being an activist also has some sort of entitlement. You have time to sit and and plan and write statements and be critical and have meetings. And all of this is extremely time consuming. So and the revolution doesn't necessarily happen with that particular direct action or direct activism, such as going down on the street, having roadblocks. It's not through that. But... You have people now that have more momentum to mobilize than the entire country ever had in the past 10 years. And that in itself is a resource that they can tap into later on in life. So nothing is really lost. I don't think we could have done it any other way or any other better way because we were also faced with a different caliber of repression. We had institutional repression. There was the whole divide and conquer. They started breaking us down mentally, emotionally, physically, psychologically, and economically very easily. And we held our ground for six months, but eventually they brought it down to the basic requirements, which is being able to bring food to the table at the end of the day. I think with the amount of horrendous decisions that were taken and done against the revolution, we reacted more or less in a satisfying way for me. Obviously, it could be better. On so many other levels but i also think that if you can give me a country that we can learn from it fully we use chile the revolution in chile as a benchmark we have thought about the revolution in sudan as a benchmark we try to look at other cases but give me a specific case that we can replicate for lebanon or give me a case that i can replicate in lebanon being a social political psychologist that specializes in collective action and repression and all of these things. Give me a case study that I can model in Lebanon without saying at the end, oh yeah, but this particular case doesn't have 18 sects to deal with, or oh yeah, but this particular case doesn't have a history of 50 years that are blacked out. Oh yes, this particular case doesn't have as many geopolitical external interventions in it. So give me something that we can work with, and then I can tell you, okay, we're not looking at these resources. But in fact, the case of Lebanon is so particular that it can only mimic itself. And so we can only rely on what we have done in the last year and the last 10 years and the years before that to be able to make it better. But we can draw on conclusions from the surrounding that we have. But Lebanon's case is extremely, extremely particular. It's it's baffling for me in my mind and in my experience with everything that I know about this field and with all of the activism that I've done in the past 15 years or so, I can still tell you that a lot of the things that happen here don't make sense. They only make sense in relation to what the political leaders are doing or in relation to what's happening in the context or in the region or in relation to what's happening right now on the financial level and level. So a lot of the successes are very embedded They're not on the institutional, structural, or systemic change, which is why some people don't want to call it a revolution. They want to call it an uprising. I'm not going to go into the semantics of things. I think people can call it whatever they want to call it. However, we can't undermine the fact that this was unprecedented. This was really good on so many levels. It is not the revolution that has caused the deterioration of the situation of the country right now. It's not at all, at all. And the only thing it did is that we just didn't take it lying down. The financial crisis was going to happen with or without the the attempted revolution that we did. The financial collapse was going to happen. The only thing that we did is we sped it up and we called out those that are doing it. So we didn't just wake up two years later with an inflation and devaluation of the currency and loss of purchasing power. We didn't do that, we were aware of every single moment, of every single decision that they have taken, and so we have that anchored in our history. And we need to rely on that particular memory and not forget it, because we tend to change what we remember, right? So it's important now to document just what happened, what really happened, because in the next few years, what the political leaders are gonna do is they're gonna try to suppress that memory. They don't wanna show that this was any revolutionary moment. This was no historical point of view at all. And you can see it as well in their attempts of pretending to be supporting the movement at the beginning, the first 10 days, 15 days, let's push it a little bit to 25 to 30 days. And then you have the attempts, they just started dismissing everything, right? No, this is not a revolution. You're ruining the country. You're not letting people go to their jobs. The blaming factor has begun. So We won't forget it this time. We saw the strategies. We were able to out them on their divide and conquer, on the corruption, on uh, even public opinion abroad. I think so many people have become disillusioned with what Lebanon is. That it almost feels less alone right now when we talk about it. When we say, oh yeah, all you have to do is just live in this country. And then you'll know it's great and all, but it's also horrible. People now really confirm that and they don't just dismiss it. It's not what it seems anymore. People know what it is. What it really is. We know who's looking out for us. We know what they're trying to do. We can see it, we can feel it in our day-to-day lives. So that's just a small rant as a take on the October 17. And I think on the political spectrum, you also have, I feel that we're still growing politically. I feel that there's a bit of political immaturity I want to say, but not necessarily in the negative sense. I think it's, it's just a bit fresh, right? You know, we moved, we've been talking about desectarian approaches or secular approaches or trying to bring down sectarianism in the day-to-day life, or maybe on a more larger institutional scale. And then suddenly we're talking about so much more for the first time. The narrative has expanded and people need time to take all of this in. You have people that did not know how most of the public administrative procedures happen. And you have people just, you could see it. People were learning so much about their country and how it operates that only now it feels like in the past year, people are trying to build a country as well. And so it's a bit difficult when you're planning something this big. You can now ask, what do you feel like you want of Lebanon in the next 10 years? And now people can give you practical things, right? Like, I want a fair taxation system. You have people responding in these manners right now. Before, you used to have, oh, I want, uh, you know, the fall of corruption, or I want to be able to find a job without AWASA or clientelistic uh, networks. It was just really up in the air. And now it's very, very specific. People have become educated about this. But what they need is, they need a bit more time. You can't change this entire... This really, really exceptional case study. You can't change it in nine months. You can't. It would be so harsh to actually reduce it to numbers of protesters that you see on the street. After six months, still having protesters on the street with everything that they were doing, holding your money hostage, not being able to make rent, not because you're out of a job, but because your money is being held hostage by the bank. Your parents' savings are completely gone. Most people retired or fired in the most horrible way. Everyone got a loophole, except for the people. Everyone, employers got a loophole. Oh, COVID hit, we don't have the finances. We're firing you all, we're closing down shop. You have budget cuts that happened everywhere. And then you also have now three different currencies that we're working with. You have the people that are getting fresh money. This is how they divided us. This is how they conquered us. They decided that, oh, okay, so everyone now is upset. Great, I'm just going to give 20% of you fresh money because you guys get paid in dollars and in the work in the private sector. So I'm going to leave it up to the minds of the employer. Go deal with it yourselves. The rest of you are going to be stuck in the more common system. If you get cash or your money is in the bank, you can wait until we open up or we decide what the procedure is. We don't even consult with you as our customers. And then you have the day-to-day people that are just caught in the turmoil of three markets for the currency rate exchange and people don't have assets. People have debts to pay, people have education, kids to feed and all of that. And so we had to rely on those that are getting fresh money that have the livelihood to keep going down and protest. But even those at the very end got tired Repression became higher. You started having violence. You started having intergroup violence. I don't want to be incapacitated because I'm fighting my neighbor because he thinks that I'm fighting his religious ideology, whereas I'm fighting his political ideology. And then you have that discourse happening on the street, and you're like, can you just understand? I don't care what you believe in, your ideology, and all of that. I'm not trying to challenge that. I am challenging your loyalty to a political leader that you have decide that represents something ideologically significant for you. So I just decided at that point that these are not the people I'm fighting with. And this is not the fight that I want to be doing right now. Obviously, it's important to raise awareness about these things, but this is not my fight. So if they want to fight with me on this, I'm just not going to be there. I was more comfortable being in conflict with the government or with the authorities of the government. That I was okay with. But then you start having these little, that I find to be, regional tensions, very specific to something historical in the historical sense of tensions. The sectarian divides, the neighborhood divides, the communal work that still needs a lot of effort. That also tipped the scale because we're not paid for our activism. They are.
0: I came across actually um, last year, there was such a sense of democratization. Everyone was here. It belonged to everyone. It was like a giant university on the streets speeches and discourse and there was workshops and there was people in tents and I think one in particular I remember there was about 40 people in a circle and a microphone just went round and there were people from all social classes, young and old, educated, not so educated and there was a sense that this is an amazing open-air university on the streets. Yeah and And I did get the sense that when I was at one protest at Electricité du Liban It was much more middle class. And I got the sense that it was a Sunday night. They're not struggling maybe to feed their families in the morning like the other group might have been because they were able to participate at the weekend. You mentioned it earlier. I think it's got to the point where it's got back to the absolute basics of how do I feed my family? How do I pay my bills? How am I going to put my children through school? And I think the government won in that sense. By just allowing it to run its course, and in the meantime the economy just completely collapsed.
1: I don't even see it as winning because this is just a natural course of revolutions. It is normal, and so they just waited it out for sure, but they didn't win anything. There were also attempts of changing tactics, so it was not just always about large-scale mobilization. We did, however, capitalize on the weekends to get mass protests happening in the regions. Saturdays, Sundays were the days where you would try to get the larger population, but in terms of direct action that was happening from Mondays to Fridays, such as stand-ins in the banks, sit-ins in the banks, saying statements, going around with uh, marches, or using cars in that sense as well, to parade around to send out messaging having roadblocks in different areas, having small marches that are educational within smaller neighborhoods that are more populist neighborhoods rather than anything else. Those were also things that were very important. So that's also good. But in general, protest regression in numbers in protests or the frequency of it is just a natural course of things, even if the repression was not this high. I think They didn't even win with that because we decided that the protests are not good for us right now because of COVID, because the government doesn't care if we get COVID. We cared. And so they took it as a win, if you want, and also the natural course of things. And in the meantime, it's not on its own that the economy collapsed. They forcefully rushed the collapse of the financial structure and the economy in the country, because then the risks ran higher for the people for sure. So if they had any intention before to rein it in and make sure it doesn't fall apart and to give the country six more months, they just let it fall through the cracks. And they let their own personal disputes and their own political narrative take over, while also underestimating the revolution as it being one of those very small little attempts of a coup, quote unquote. And they were like, oh yeah, we're just going to wait until they start bickering amongst each other which also took a long, long time to happen.
0: Another thing that I think happened, and it's definitely not going away, thinking back to the first time I was in Lebanon in 2015, one thing that struck me was when I went to one area, you knew straight away, this is a Maronite area, the Lebanese Forces posters. This is a Hezbollah area. And when I was back there last year, it was the complete opposite. All of the banners Mm -hmm. were gone. There was graffiti on the walls, lampooning all these political leaders. I'm following, I can't remember the name of the Instagram page in particular, but they call people out. They call out these politicians. They're named and shamed. They have been forced to retreat now. They can no longer flaunt their wealth. That's gone.
1: More or less, yeah. People have really become disillusioned with these authority figures. It's the worst thing when you can barely make ends meet and you see someone so greedy in front of you and not feeling, you know, Lebanon is extremely generous. We're, we're very people-oriented, we're human-oriented. We've been in worse situations before and we've helped each other out. So seeing how removed they were really pushed us to remove them altogether from the public sphere. That's something that's really, that I think I'm very proud of, of what the revolution led to, kicking out Fuad Sanyura, who is an alumni of AUB, very, very highly affiliated with AUB. Having my own mother be in the crowd kicking him out from the assembly hall. I think it was the Christmas lighting of the tree around December. Not starting the assembly before this guy left after 45 minutes of him being booed out because the people did not want him pretending to celebrate with everyone else. Whereas all they wanted was that one hour where they don't have to be reminded of how suppressed they are by their own people. That for me is, So much more revolutionary than anything else. Having our parents' generation be so infuriated by how horribly these political leaders are acting. Having them step in like this is extremely amazing. We used to fight with the older generation. Oh, they tell us we're idealists because we're asking for more. We're asking for better. We're asking for something different. That's it. Can I at least be responsible for the people that are dealing with the country or do i still have to deal with your decision that happened over a decade ago and so i'm cleaning up that mess so having our parents and having the older generation have our back as youth as younger people that still want to have some sort of future here maybe that was moment that was really good instead of them arguing with us for calling out secular stuff or secular chants or calling out for secular state or calling out for basic civic rights. The fact that they see that is historical in its own sense. This whole transgenerational trauma, this sectarianism that we inherited, this tension, this constant feeling that you have tension inside your body, inside your mind, inside your political mind even, is very much inherited. And then also feeling that validation is incredible. It almost gives you a lot of hope that, you know, the last 10 years have not been in vain. Our parents can actually grow out of that trauma because they can see that what we're going through now beats the civil war. And I think, unfortunately, and I'm really sorry to say this, but what the explosion did, the explosion that happened in August four, when the port exploded and nearly destroyed the capital, really kind of won. Our generation, I say this so sadly, our generation wins over the Civil War for the first time. They have never been through anything like this. They have never been through any sort of neglect or such a large scale disaster that no one picked up afterwards except for us. It's the first time I feel that the older generation is giving it to us. For us, it was clear it was Muslims versus Christians, and we could just avoid certain areas or certain streets, or if you're not politicized, you could get away with it. It was just keep to yourself and, and that's it. And this one was, wow, how do you go on after this? And so I feel that they moved away from their past and they realized that they need to be more present in our present right now and the past that we have experienced, rather than gaslighting us all the time. Oh yeah, you don't know, you've never been through a civil war. Oh yeah, you don't understand, you've never been through a civil war. They get it, the generation gets it now. And honestly, in my opinion, this has been the hardest thing to do. Skewing my family's uh, opinions, my grandmother's opinion, skewing the opinions of people that are older that have benefited from clientelism, but now also see how much it's not for their own benefit that they don't care about them, they see it. And the explosion just gave it that extra push it needed, because you see a lot about people's genuine spirit in times of misery. The general spirit of these political leaders in some areas, and this was published in, with videos and stuff, some people were kicked out. Some political leaders tried to go in acting like the savior after everything, and people kicked them out of their own neighborhoods which I think is also monumental because in places like Ashrafieh, that are still highly politicized, finally having the actual people of the community saying, we don't care, we don't want you here, that's it. My house is destroyed, it's in rubble, and I'm alive still, and the only thing I know I don't want is you right now here trying to take credit. I don't want your help, your sympathy, I want you to get away. And then you have in other areas where they can you know, welcome them a little bit more, but it's a very shy crowd. Because not only do we call out politicians now, we also, very frankly, are calling out anyone that is still following politicians right now. It's happening in the form of bullying, unfortunately, but I think people just really, really have no respect anymore for these things. It's not a process of democratization. It's more of how can you not be on the same page anymore? Really, what are you waiting for? Oh, you're getting money? Okay, great. I'm not getting money, so I have no intention of pretending that this is all okay.
0: It's almost like the explosion had to happen to prove to your parents' generation that it's not the case that you experienced trauma and the butchering of your country and that we don't know any better. We're living it right now, and we have to prove through this incident why the system as it is just is not working.
1: Yeah, I think this was the biggest wake-up call maybe. I wish the explosion didn't have to happen but it did, I'm not sure it had to at all. I think every day that passes since that explosion, I think to myself, "Wow, we could have done this any other way. It really didn't have to be that way." But since it is, I'm not going to pretend our generation is going to come out of this anytime soon. I think I really understand the impact that it will have on us, that it will have on the younger ones as well. I uh, My generation had the opportunity to fall in love with this country. I don't know what's left of it right now for the younger ones. I'm not sure they will be able to develop that sensation because they're now getting it completely in rubble. And we got it in a complete mess and a chaos and we spent a lot of time trying to understand it. And then this kind of actualized and what our parents I think now feel is that they're no longer living in the past. There's a different reality right now that they're not familiar with, which is their own state against them, all of it. They can't unblur the lines anymore. It's no longer the Christians versus the Muslims. It's more of the people in power versus the people that are not, or just the people. And that's an additional point that I think is really great because the older generation is the one that's working more in the public sector not the young ones. We work in the NGO sectors. We're gonna travel at some point. We were self-employed. We have different opportunities. And so the larger population that works day to day, that works in the public sector, that works with the government as well, they can't hide what's happening anymore because everyone got affected somehow. Everyone's life except for that 1% or whatever percent it is now got affected somehow by the series of decisions that the government and the state and the people in charge have taken against their people in the past 12 months. For
0: children who are 10, 12 years younger than you and me, they're in their teenage years or their late primary, and they grew up with the Saura as a lived experience. So they're growing up in a completely different vision of what it is to be Lebanese. These ideals and these concepts about citizenship and a united country, That's going to have a profound effect on their sense of who they are as people, their vision of the future. And they've also, unfortunately, had to experience the explosion, the economic crisis and all the rest of it. But their experience in all of this, for the first time outside of the sectarian framework that has been Lebanon since it was established, it's not about Christians versus Muslims versus Druze. It's Mm -hmm. not even about external factors anymore. These are the people in our country who caused this to my parents, Mm -hmm. to my older brothers and sisters. Do you feel that in time, they will be the ones who are really going to establish this fully secular state, this state that's able to function in and of itself without being, for want of a better word, bastardized by external countries Hmm. who use it for their benefit?
1: As an individual, I'm speaking in my full capacity as Carol, not as anything else. I don't think our generation, and the younger one, was concerned about the Christian-Muslim dichotomy and was more concerned about the political parties and actual neighbourhoods, regions. There's this regional alliance as well, or loyalty, primarily because when you grow up in a certain area, you have similar problems. Even if you're richer or poorer, you have the same infrastructure, more or less, that's happening around you. People that are younger, I felt had more spirit, they definitely had more energy. They have more energy now that if they feel that they want to change or can change something, they can invest in it. I can imagine that if I was 10 years younger and this was happening now, I can say maybe 15 or 16 years ago was my first protest ever. I was 13 or 14 maybe years old. I think of myself, if I am 18 right now and I just finished school, in a politicized area where issues are very much linked to political parties and I'm going into university right now. I can imagine that the economic crisis would have affected me. I would have seen it maybe affecting my parents, my household, my family, but it might not have affected me yet directly. And I can see that I will struggle to find a job with decent living conditions and all of these things. I can see that I might think twice about getting an education because... It's just so expensive right now. Everything is so expensive. I see two scenarios or three scenarios happening. Obviously, you have the scenario where people are going to try to leave. And that's the part where I feel that maybe Lebanon is at a point now where the younger generation is going to be smarter than us and maybe be able to really assess if any change is going to happen in the next 10 years. Because from my generation, we talk amongst ourselves and... Some of us stuck around because we really believed if not a full change, then we can make a difference. As long as we're here, we might as well try. And then you have those that left. I kind of um, look back at that and I wonder if I should have left earlier on when I had the energy as well to relocate somewhere else. So you have the people that are going to think of leaving automatically, especially after the explosion. When you have something of this caliber, of this much neglect for human life, coming so directly from your own, it hits really close to home. It's not like it was external or any of that. It was our own people against our own people and no one cared. So I can imagine that you might not feel that sense of community. So you might just want to leave and relocate somewhere else. So that's one scenario. And we're starting to see that happening. And externally, what other countries are going to do is they're going to try to divide it up. So they're now taking more immigration applications from Christians, for example, because they've decided that this is the quota that they're going to go for. So you're going to have a disproportionate population traveling versus those that are staying. The other scenario would be a lot of people really were nurtured by this revolution. We created a generation, I think, that is so much more informed on the civic level that I do trust that the new emerging adults can handle their own, more or less, can be a bit more critical than when we were growing up and the surrounding around us. We had to deal with a lot of opinions and perceptions. The conversation was very, very fresh still 10 years ago. So we have laid the groundwork for them. And I think that they can use that mobilizing potential that they fed off during the revolution and maybe take it further. And this can be represented either in groups or clubs or university clubs or attempts of initiatives everywhere. I do believe that these people are creative, resourceful with whatever they have. So I think we're going to see a lot of interesting work coming out now, a lot of transformative work, a lot of work that might not make it on the political radar per se, because it's not traditional in a sense. And I always fear that these types of resistances that I actually call infra-resistances, because I don't think they're considered up to the caliber of being caught on the political radar, political movement radar. And this can be done on community work that's happening, small initiatives that are happening that are breaking the hegemonic structure or expectation of how things should go and kind of setting the tone. So I think you're going to see a lot of young people engaging in very interesting, non-traditional ways of trying to create change. And so we should be wary of dismissing that. We shouldn't dismiss that at all. We should try to look at it because maybe it needs a different radar because I don't think the youth of Lebanon will revolutionize the same way that they revolutionized 30, 40 years ago or 50 years ago. We have different ways of thinking about humans and how to take charge of things. And this could be violent or nonviolent, it doesn't matter. But I feel there's a difference in essence or approach of things. And then you have the third scenario, which is also very possible. You do also still have a lot of youth that are politicized. Let's not forget that because it's not just about the older generation. It's not about the political parties. It's not about just the political leaders. It's also about the peers that are around you that either way, at the end of the day, you will distance yourself from if they have really radical positions and are unable to make a discussion with you. Which brings us back to the same point of when you're interacting on the ground with militias, for example. You start thinking with yourself, is this the fight that I want to have? Is my role here right now to educate and convert, quote unquote, convert as in convince people of your own political movement, knowing that it's going to be very difficult because you can't give them any incentive. You're not giving them any religious ideology or foundation that they can really trust blindly or have faith in which is equivalent to trusting blindly. So you're also going to see a lot of people not breaking free from this. And we have to be okay with that because I'm not sure having a secular state is really what we want. And if it was what we wanted, I think we would have all been a bit clearer on asking for that. But there's a reason why we're not just necessarily pushing for that because it's not secularism that will change it. There are so many structural issues, the transgenerational trauma, you inherit your parents' ideologies, you have value systems that you're talking about. It's not Democrats versus Republicans, it's not a dichotomy, it's not two things, it's 18 things. If you're just looking at sect or ideology, it's not just the economy, it's the economy and then you have civil rights It's not just civil rights. You have gender rights. It's not just gender rights. It's refugee rights. It's not just refugee rights. It's about climate change and environmental protection. So how do you begin building a country from scratch? You first understand that you will have differences in opinions. And so what the youth will do is they will have to know how to navigate these waters because they're treacherous. They will need to learn how to be critical, but not insulting someone. All of which are stuff that are, they need a lot of work. They need work on societal skills. You need to infiltrate the workplace. You need to stop the corruption somewhere. Otherwise, you're going to find yourself in a situation where you're acting in a corrupt way. And you know what? There's no other way to do it sometimes. You will find yourself at some point bribing someone to do their job. And you're going to rationalize that and justify it and say, you know, this is how it works. Or you're gonna challenge it and say, I don't want it to work this way, but how do you get your stuff done in the meantime? So there has to be a large institutional systematic change for this revolution that started last year to materialize across the generations. And it's gonna take a longer time. Your educational system has to be better. It has to be more critical. Your healthcare system has to be more universal. Your pension plan, your employment schemes have to be clear. They're not clear. You have to have one place that is still pure, which you don't have. It's not in the NGO world. It's not in the CSOs or civil society organizations. It's not within the political groups. It's not in the religious institutions either. Where is it? It's not external because everyone has their own power sharing benefits. There is not yet a single sector that you can actually grab in Lebanon That is pure of all forms of corruption or is not riddled with corruption and already hijacked by someone else. It's not that the alternative doesn't exist, it's that creating that alternative without necessarily erasing someone from the population is the difficult part. You're rebuilding an entire society and the entire society that has to be rebuilt is the one that's going to be stuck here. So you also have to understand the mental toll that this takes on someone being trapped in a country that's not giving them their services, not protecting their rights, and not validating when they screw up, I'm sorry to say. But I have not seen a higher diffusion of responsibility amongst politicians ever, anywhere, or of this caliber. Everyone in charge diffusing responsibility all the time, and people being okay with that, because their priorities are different, and the political leaders know that. So the youth... Their priorities are going to be reactionary as well. They're going to try to infiltrate the other communities. They're going to keep trying until they get tired like us. And until then, we can only see what they will leave behind for the generation to come. But I think they're going to do good work. I have a feeling they're going to do good work. We laid the ground and they will lay the ground. It's just how life works eventually. Do I want them necessarily to? No, I wouldn't wish this upon anyone right now because it's going to take around 20 to 30 years but i'm betting on the older generation i'm betting on us because for us it's still fresh in our minds we just started going out into this world we had just figured out how things worked and then suddenly everything changed so if we are to stay here we're not going to just stay we're going to want to see something changing and i think this might be the time where the two generations can start working together rather than having the older generation patronizing the younger ones for being distracted and apathetic and too modern and have different responsibilities and whatnot. So I think if both these generations work together, we have a lot to learn from each other. And you can basically widen the scope of the entire movement because it's no longer about this particular segment of the population. It's about building an entire society.
0: Is there anything that can happen in the next year to recalibrate the Soura that can reinvigorate it. What's the number one immediate priority from now until next year, given that last year has been just so difficult in so many aspects?
1: I'm not sure how to answer that question. I'm not sure there is that one thing. I think. I think definitely we need a breather I think if we get a break for a month, everything would change, but we haven't gotten a break in the past year. So I'm not sure it's just one thing and I'm not sure it can be reduced to that. I can tell you though that I feel that the next step should be getting over the fact that the revolution did not work and really just getting over that and realizing that it did on so many levels and capitalizing on that. And I think we're overly romanticizing what we think worked or didn't work by external standards. And we're really missing out on what we did accomplish. I think if we stop wallowing around and thinking that they have won and we have failed, maybe we can start getting somewhere. Because it's been around three months where all I'm seeing is people fighting and bickering over whether or not they think we failed or we succeeded. And this isn't the time. I would just capitalize right now on the small victories, assessing really why they worked and what did those victories tap into? Did it tap into delegitimizing the public figures or the authority figures? Did it tap into the political ideology? Did it tap into classism issues? Did it tap into external affairs or international affairs issues? And we need to go back to the drawing board and we need to think... If that worked, why did it work, and how can we make it work again? That's the one thing that we need to do. I'm not going to be, oh, we need to find an alternative, or, oh, we need to have a different political party running in the next elections against them. Because we did those. We have small wins. We have independent student bodies that have taken over for the first time in ages or ever in their history over the sectarian parties. Universities are so politicized. Every year we have fight that breaks down and blood that gets shed with physical fights over elections that happen in university settings, student elections. So we need to focus on how we won these things. How did we get an independent body in the syndicate of lawyers? How did we get an independent body in the syndicate of dentists? How are we mobilizing on these fronts? And what is it touching really with the political leaders? And let's see how we can capitalize on that. Because no single revolution was accomplished by a street protest or a march. That's not just it. It's like that formality that you do. You go to a family lunch because you have a family, right, on specific holidays. So you can't miss out on that. So you have to have mass protests and mobilizations because it kind of gives you a little bit of consolidation for your identity or for your cause or all of that. But effectively, the only way that you can have systemic change is by really sitting and critically analyzing why something worked or did not work. Not wallowing around saying, oh look, we're in worse situation after a year, great. Are you staying here? If you're staying here, then you need to start thinking about what really worked? Why did we keep this going? In comparison to all of the other protests, why did this one go for this long? Why were we finally able to mobilize people in highly politicized areas outside of Beirut? Why was this decentralized as much? These are the questions that we need to start thinking about. Not what is the one thing, because there's not going to be that one thing. I don't know what it is. I just know that there are a bunch of small things and there's so much potential there. And we're so smart with it. We can be so smart with it. It doesn't have to be on the street. It doesn't always have to be on the street. And it's not enough reason for us to pretend that we failed right now just because we're not seeing anyone on the street. I'm too tired to go on the street. I'm too tired to be yelling in front of a parliament that's completely empty. The people are in their houses. The politicians are in their house. They didn't meet once for the first month and a half that we were protesting. That's not the aim. What is the aim? I want to hit them where it hurts. Yesterday there was a thunderstorm and uh, it was the first one since the blast. And so a lot of people woke up feeling very triggered and having a lot of PTSD. And I actually saw one of a fellow friend and activist posted a status today on Facebook. And she said, today we all realize that we have not slept. Can we agree that when we don't sleep, we don't allow them to sleep? Can we go to their houses and make sure that they stay up all night long making noises in front of their houses just because we did not sleep yesterday so they don't get to sleep tonight. And honestly, that's the best thing we can do this week. If I am to do anything, I would just go down to every politician's house and just annoy the hell out of them and keep them up all night. Although it's going to keep all the residents as well up. But I would start doing stuff like that I would start being a pain in their ass, really. We're here to stay. So if we're both going to be living together, imagine if they're your flatmates. We're both going to be living together. Are you going to leave or am I? If we're not going to leave, then we're going to test each other's boundaries. So I would go and I would push them over the edge so that they get all of the nasty things that they have to do out there already so that we know how to deal with it later on. Provoking sometimes is the best thing that you can do. If I'm not going to achieve 100% change right now, I would like to be a reasons for someone that's having it good in life. I would really like to be a reasons. and that's the most I can hope for.
0: That's brilliant. Fascinating. And I think that's one of the best analyses I've heard about Thank last you. year, but also you're right, being a nuisance and you're choosing to stay. So I really wish you the best of luck and keep it up and you have a lot of support sometimes Lebanese people might think they haven't internationally but there is a lot of support keep it up
1: i hope that support stays because we need them to be our eyes and ears outside as well
0: thank you so much carol thanks so much my thanks again to carol for that really insightful and very deep interview on the current situation in Lebanon. I do wish her the best of luck in her work and in her activism. If you want to find out more about Carol, she's also a DJ and producer, and she has a SoundCloud profile, so you can check her out at Elshar, that's E-L-S-H-A-A-R, on SoundCloud. Thanks again to you for listening, and I'll be in touch soon enough with the next episode.